Let's understand the world a little better. I'm your host, Timo Wunderlich, and with me is Erika Geis. She's a journalist, National Geographic explorer, and the author of Water Always Wins. In the past, I've had a few interviews with guests who uh, try to explain how states and organizations think and what they want. Today, we have a different kind of actor, that is water. And Erika, I want to ask you, what does water want? Yeah, that's a key question that the people I met while reporting my book are trying to answer. And basically, you know, there's a kind of related rights of nature movement, uh, which says like a river, for example, has the right to flow and to go through its various processes and have relationships with soil and rock and microbes and fish and beavers and plants. And so, you know, what water wants, I've come to understand, is <clears throat> to be able to pursue all those natural processes and relationships. And um, to a large extent in the dominant culture, by which I mean kind of Euro North American culture that's been exported around the world, um, we have interfered to a large extent in water's slow phases. So these are wetlands, floodplains, mountain meadows, and forests. And so the people I met in my book are all working to return to water some of these areas for the slow phases where the water can then um, also move underground because that surface groundwater relationship is really important to a lot of the basic functioning that water does. Oh, perfect. I wanted to go into that. Uh, what actually are different types of water? You now mentioned groundwater um, or surface water. And um, what else What else do we, uh, do we maybe have to keep in mind in terms of um, salt water um, is probably different? Um, what, what, how does it act differently? I mean, yeah, um, I mean, there's the water cycle is complex and global, and scientists are still learning more about it. Um, just a couple of statistics about the extent to which humans have interfered with the natural water cycle. So um, humans have filled or drained as much as 87% of the world's wetlands. And we've dammed and diverted two-thirds of the world's large rivers. Um, the area of land covered by our cities with pavement and asphalt has doubled just since 1992. And so in all of these ways, we're preventing water from doing, you know, going through these natural phases. So, you know, people probably remember in school learning about water's different phases, right? Water can be liquid, um, but it can also be gas. It can be solid in the form of ice. Um, and so when water is on the surface uh, in a slow phase, it can often filter underground through soil, sometimes going down to the, an aquifer, which is basically um, an area of kind of bigger rocks where the water can sit in a pool and people can then pump it out if they want. But also, if that supply is healthy in full, it can supply surface water from below. So wetlands, streams. So like I'm from California and in the Western United States, we tend to have this sense that streams only run in the winter. Like during much of the year, they're just dry. 
But mm. historically, that wasn't the case in a lot of places because this groundwater was supplying the water from below. So the water would remain constant throughout the year. But because we've dried out the landscape in these various ways, this also means like cutting forests, really overgrazing grasslands. Um, you know, that groundwater isn't being resupplied. And so therefore it's falling down further and can't supply um, the water from below. And then on the atmospheric side, um, you know, the way that rain forms is when water um, is evapotranspired. Um, so evaporation, I think, is, you know, like uh, when the sun pulls water from the ocean or lakes into a gas form. Um, and then transpiration is when plants kind of exhale water through the stomata on their leaves. And this is a natural part of um, plants' processes. And they can pull groundwater up and access that and then release it um, into the air to form this gas. And then, you know, when the, the air reaches a certain saturation with water, um, that's when rain can form. But also, um, like plants themselves can release um, these little particles uh, that help that rain to nucleate as well. So there's some really interesting science about the role that plants play in actually helping the rain to form and even like pulling the rain toward them. You know, we tend to think that plants grow where rain happens, but some emerging science is, is arguing that plants have evolved to bring to themselves the rain that they need. So um, another interesting finding is like over continents, 10 to 80% of rain comes from plants and soil. Uh, the water evapotranspiring out of plants and soil. So when we really dry out the landscape by cutting forests, by hard grazing the grassland, even industrial agriculture, because you know you are putting plants in the soil, but they're only there part of the year. So part of the year, there's nothing that is releasing that water. Um, and also the soil is much drier uh, because it's not protected by that complex layer of plants. And sometimes people are putting pesticides into the soil, which can kill the life and little microorganisms and critters that are in there. And soil that has a higher, so, so soil is made of both life, bi biota, and also mineral matter. And soil that has higher life in it is able to hold orders of magnitude more water. So that helps supply plants. So they need less irrigation, for example, or less watering that can better weather droughts. Um, and it also means uh, less runoff and flooding when you have uh, big rains. Yeah, I think what we more and more are learning the, is the interconnectedness between all these different um, things. So water... One thing you mentioned is basically water um, wants to be able to connect to different um, parts of, uh, I would say, parts of a of a region, parts of the ecosystem. And if um, if people just build a dam there, because or because or maybe a street because they want to drive uh, from the, here to there and they don't really care about the water. Um, then that um, brings certain problems with it. Um, yeah, I would assume if if water wants to um, if water wants to be able to uh, connect with these different 
um, regions that also um, brings with it a transport of certain elements or certain um, certain things that come from one region to another, and that is probably left out now as well, right? Um, are you talking about um, like different animal species who might live in the river? For example, animals, yeah. or meaning, uh, or or uh, plants, for example, if uh, if um, or or microbes, or uh, if 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 the ri if one river um, goes um, from one more dry uh, from one, one more dry region to a, a less dry region, there are probably uh, probably different um, plants there, or. Uh, in, in general, different uh, different uh, microbes, different plants, different animals, and um, they would then um, participate in giving something to that water and taking something out of it, right? So that water would, in a way, change, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, there are certainly... So one thing we do in our dominant culture that you were talking about is like, we have a very kind of single focus problem solving. So, you know, we want to get somewhere. So let's build a road or we're worried about not having enough water. So let's build a dam and bring it from somewhere else. Or we're worried about flooding. So let's build a wall, let's build a levee. Um, and in that kind of trying to solve the immediate problem, we're not looking at these complex systems. Like you said, we're ignoring water. We're ignoring all of these complex systems that help water to function in all of the ways that it does and support life, including ourselves. Um, and so that can create a lot of negative unintended consequences. And that's a point that I make in my book is that our development choices, climate change is causing water extremes. It is causing more intense storms and droughts but our development choices are making these disasters much worse. And the good news about that is like, that's something that we can address in our own communities. And so um, the slow water concepts that I talk about in my book, one of the principles is that slow water projects are primarily local. And when you bring in water from somewhere else, one thing you can do, especially if you do something that's called a basin to basin transfer. So a water basin is basically like from the mountaintop down to the sea, the river and like the tributaries and um, the wetlands and all of the rain that falls is going into that one basin and then ultimately coming down to the ocean. Um, so sometimes people will build a big pipe and bring water from one basin to another basin. And one of the hazards of doing that is it can introduce different species, um, aquatic species, also plants um, that might cause problems in that new uh, ecosystem. So I think that, that's part of what you're uh, alluding to there. Um, but there but, would be in a bad way, right? So Yes, yes. Um, okay. But there's also like environmental justice issues in that kind of approach. So there was a really interesting 40-year uh, study that found that dams brought water to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. So hmm. you're having a really big impact on the ecosystem and the plants and animals who live there, but you're also... Um, having a big impact on people. So I think a lot, like in, in wealthier countries, you know, we need water. We think let's build a dam, we can afford it. But in fact, you're, you're taking water away from somewhere else. And similarly with levees, um, 
you know, a levee is basically cutting the river off from the floodplain. And the floodplain exists to absorb floods. So if the river, when it's high, can't reach that floodplain, the level, the water level within that channel is going to be higher. So that means if you have a community over here who maybe can't afford a levee, you are increasing the flood risk for them. So that's also an environmental justice issue. And the extent to which um, humans have put levees all along rivers is can be really extreme. Um, like in the Mississippi River in the United States, um, there's more than 3,500 miles of levees. And the high water stage in St. Louis, Missouri, is 13 feet higher than it was 100 years ago. And it also creates risk for people um, who are receiving the benefit of the levy, you know, because they think, oh, there's a levy there now, it's safe, you know, let's build some more houses there. But in fact, that levy is likely to overtop or to fail at some point, and you've just put a lot more people in harm's way. And similarly with a dam, when you bring in water from somewhere else, um, again and again, the, a, a group of scientists called socio-hydrologists, which is like people in water, the study of people in water, they found that bringing in more supply from somewhere else just increases demand. So it makes more farmers, more housing developments, more businesses think, oh, look, there's more water here. So let's develop here. And so what that means is that you have more people who are at risk in this area that really doesn't have enough water to support that many people and activity. Interesting. Yeah, that that makes that makes sense. So, what would be a uh, back to the um, dams and levies? Uh, um, what would be a better way to uh, go about that? Yeah. So. One thing that I learned um, in talking to all these people from around the world is that um, there's a lot that we can do to make more space for slow water within our human habitats. Um, so, you know, we don't have to abandon everything we've done and return everything to nature. Um, but there are many opportunities to do a lot more than we are doing. You know, we have this kind of very control-oriented mindset, um, like we can control water. But as we're seeing, like that's an illusion, right? We're having these devastating floods and droughts every day somewhere in the world. Um, and uh, part of the reason why that control is failing is because the extent to which we've interfered with the natural water cycle and you know, like 75% of the land area on earth is severely degraded by our activities. So that means these natural ecosystems that have buffered us and supported us and created all of the things that we need for life are really kind of at the brink. So, you know, slow water, climate change, um, the biodiversity crisis, all of these are linked because um, we have eroded so many of these natural processes that support us. So, you know, in a city, um, there is, a, you know, the idea is to try to make what's impermeable permeable. So we have all this concrete and asphalt and the water cannot soak into the ground when it falls as rain. And so that leads to flooding. And then, you know, we are worried about flooding. So we try to get the water out of the city as quickly as possible. And then when the dry season comes, 
all of that water that fell as rain in our local area has been sent elsewhere. And so then we say, oh no, we don't have enough water. And so, you know, maybe we pump groundwater or maybe we build a dam and bring it from somewhere else. Um, and this is, this is a problem around the world where a lot of places are simultaneously causing flooding at some points and then scarcity at other points. And it's because they're not making the most of the water that comes. Um, you know, a good example is Los Angeles. Um, you know, Los Angeles is kind of infamous for taking water from other places and really, you know, this vast population is living there and there isn't enough local water to support it. But then you look at the Los Angeles River and it's a complete, you know, it's a concrete canyon. The entire thing is just like a concrete tube. Um, and so when you have big rainstorms like California did this last winter, there's so much water gushing through there and it's just ripping through there and going to the ocean. And then the summer comes and they say, oh no, we don't have any water. <laughs> um, so like there's been talk in Los Angeles of trying to infiltrate more of that stormwater, move it underground, then it's in the local ecosystems. Um, but those plans haven't gotten very far. Um, another example is Chennai, India, which I write about in my book. Um, and, you know, Ch India gets the monsoon. So they get most of their rain during one part of the year, and then they have longer periods without rain. Um, and during the monsoon, Chennai actually gets one and a half times the water that it consumes. But, you know, it made international headlines about five years ago because it ran out of water. In mm. fact, like it runs out of water almost every summer. And the urban area has expanded um, by a factor of nine just since 1980. And there was a lot of natural water in this area, um, three rivers, multiple kinds of wetlands. And so much of that has been paved over. And so now even when you have a small rain, I was there during a small rain and instantly streets started to flood. Um, and so, you know, they're trying to get rid of this water and then bring it from elsewhere. They're building desalinization plants. They're pumping groundwater from other places. Um, but now there is a movement to try to prevent further loss of wetlands and to restore some of the wetlands that have been lost. And um, there's also a really cool um, ancient uh, cultural way of managing water in that area called the Eri system um, that the local Tamil people invented about 2000 years ago. And there are still remnants of that system on the landscape. And so people are kind of working to restore that too. So, you know, that's in cities. Um, and then there are other approaches uh, in agriculture and forestry um, and other types of landscapes as well that all um, involve basically like restoring natural ecosystems to, in, in some areas to some degree. Um, and, you know, these projects are cumulative. So every little bit helps. And when you can string a bunch of them together, it's, it's a distributed solution rather than centralized, distributed across the landscape. And when you can string a bunch of them together, they can have a bigger impact. And a lot of people who are doing these projects start with something called historical ecology. So that's the idea of mapping where the streams and rivers and wetlands were uh, before human development changed them, with the idea being um, 
this is where water is likely to go again or to try to go again. Um, and so you can sometimes have an outsized impact. <clears throat> so I wrote about a stream in Seattle that had been, you know, all the forests were cut alongside of it. Then it was straightened because that was causing flooding. And then that was causing it to kind of fast water, which erodes and scours away the dirt. <clears throat> so they had, had all these levels of creating one problem and then doing something just to solve that, which created another problem and doing something to solve that. So with the historical ecology, um, and, and the creek was flooding the town, the city um, almost every year. It was flooding a school, a road, um, the homes that were built like right over it. Um, and so they were able to see that these areas that were flooding were the historical floodplains. That's why they were continuing to flood. And so the creek was maybe 11 miles long. It goes through an area of Seattle that's very, um, you know, densely populated. Um, but the two projects they did were only 1,600 feet in total. But because they chose these places that were the historical floodplains, um, they have actually eliminated the flooding problem that they had there. And it was so successful that now they're looking for additional um, projects along the path and along other creeks around Seattle that will help to, um, you know, uh, not only eliminate flooding issues, but also help restore um, salmon runs, which have been really damaged by development as well. Interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, other, what, what other ways um, or what other solutions uh, have been found? Yeah, um, in my book, I have Water's Journey arranged uh, sort of in chronological time. Um, so the first chapter is about um, geological solutions underground, and then I've got microbes, and then beavers, and then ancient humans, uh, like uh, in India, which I talked about. Also, I looked at an ancient culture in the Peruvian Andes that uh, is being used again in the modern era. Um, then I have kind of modern humans focused on sponge cities in China, and then future humans. Um, I looked at water towers in Kenya and coastal issues in San Francisco Bay and also the possibility of managed retreat, which is the idea that some areas are going to be flooded in the future and we're gonna need to move back from those. So um, yeah, I mean, all of the examples are really fun and interesting in their own way. Um, are, are there any of those in particular that you'd like to hear more about? <laughs> I mean, Spanish city sounds, sounds super interesting. What yeah, is a Spanish I mean, city? Yeah, that's kind of um, what I was talking about earlier in terms of making urban areas uh, more permeable to water. And <clears throat> this is a global movement. People are doing it all around the world. Um, in Europe, I think they often call it like green infrastructure or natural infrastructure. Um, but China calls it sponge cities, which I think is really evocative because, you know, a sponge absorbs water and then it can release water. Um, and China ha has taken this approach national. Um, President Xi Jinping supports it. It's been rolled out in more than 500 cities across the country. Um, and the goal is that what they found was that rain that fell, only about 20% of it was infiltrating into the ground uh, because of all the pavement. And the goal of sponge cities is for 70% of the rain to infiltrate into the ground. Um, 
Now, a lot of these projects um, starting out are maybe five square miles. So if you consider that some of these cities are maybe a thousand square miles, you can understand how it's not what they've done so far is not enough to prevent flooding in cities. So sometimes you'll see headlines that, you know, China is still having urban flooding. Um, and it's really not that surprising. You know, it is a question of scale. You think about that 87% of wetlands that we've taken away from water and you begin to understand why we need so many small areas for water to infiltrate like all throughout our landscapes. Um, in California, uh, that was my example for the, the geological interventions. And there's a really cool feature underground called paleo valleys. And basically um, during the glacial era, um, the water uh, carved these really deep channels coming down off the mountains into the, the central plain. And then later in the glacial cycle, those channels were filled with rock and cobble that kind of the water scraped off the mountains. So what that means is that you have these ancient rivers that are buried and are very close to the surface that are extremely permeable, you know, instead of being filled with like silt and clay, they're filled with rock. And so the water can move into them very quickly. And so if you're having a series of really big storms like California had last winter, if you can root some of that stormwater, that flood water on top of these very permeable places, then the water can move underground very quickly. And then over a longer period, uh, you know, expand into the surrounding clays and raise the groundwater table, which is really important in place, agricultural places like California, where people have pumped out a lot of groundwater. And so the levels have fallen a lot. And, um, you know, so much of the agriculture that we produce around the world is supported by um, unsustainable use of groundwater. So that means that it's getting depleted. And at some point in various places around the world where a lot of agriculture comes from, they're not going to have access to that water anymore. So there could be really significant crashes in the global food supply if this issue is not addressed. So that using these paleo valleys to help refill groundwater when we have these big storms is, is one approach uh, that California is beginning to take. I want to ask you a question. Um, If, if we were to start new and you would, you would uh, design the first city, let's say in terms of um, engineering for water, um, would you, would you, where would you build this uh, where would you build the city would you build it where the water would naturally go probably i would assume or um what what, what things would you have in mind yeah that's an interesting question um you know i mean humans historically have gravitated toward water because we need water for life um and so that's why so many cities were built near rivers and streams Uh, also for shipping and transportation before there were roads, uh, you know, that was a significant way that goods were moved around. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, people also had sewage. And so they were often dumping their sewage into rivers, <clears throat> which then meant it was too polluted to use for drinking and also became sort of a liability. And so that was sort of a stage <clears throat> toward people thinking, 
you know, why don't we just cover this up and, oh, look, we have more area within our city, you know, real estate, let's build on top of that. So um, around the world, many, many streams uh, have been buried in this way. And um, like I looked at a couple of U.S. East Coast cities and it was about 75% of, of streams have been buried. And sometimes they're just filled with dirt and then built over. And so the water has to kind of seep through. Sometimes they're put in a pipe and then buried. Uh, but, you know, when we have these big storms, that uh, capacity isn't always capable of, of handling the water, which is another reason why we're seeing increased um, flooding. So I would, if I, if, I were, if I were the king a long time ago, the queen, um, I would put the settlements further back from the edge of the water because water is a very, you know, we see these narrow troughs for our rivers and we think that's what a river is. But in its natural state, a river often has these S curves. It has many different braided branches. It expands over the floodplain. It comes back. And if you look at a lot of indigenous cultures around the world, um, they did not build permanent settlements right alongside water they would camp near water because water was such an important source of food and they would be there seasonally to harvest a lot of fish, for example, but their permanent homes would be up on higher land farther away. Um, so I think, I think that is a good model to follow, you know, you, understanding that water works best when it um, is allowed to maintain its natural processes. Another example is agriculture. So land that is periodically flooded is very rich soil because the water de deposits silt, which has life and nutrients in it. And so indigenous people also understood that and they would plant in those areas. Um, but there was an understanding that sometimes those crops would be lost to flooding. And that was part of the trade-off to be able to uh, make the most use of that incredibly fertile soil. Um, but the dominant culture, you know, we wanted to control that and to control all the loss. And so, you know, we build the levee. So that means that maybe we're not having that, kind of semi-regular flooding and we're not losing those crops, but we're also not benefiting from the, the soil continuing to be made more healthy as, as new material is, is added. And um, like in the California Delta, where there's a lot of farming, they built so many levees that completely um, kept that silt from landing that uh, the soil actually oxidized and it has, you know, the, the ground level has fallen like 25 feet. And so these things um, inside the levees were called islands, but they're actually these basins because of all of that collapse. So, um, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences in this kind of straight ahead, single focus way of trying to address one thing. And the, there are many indigenous cultures around the world who, so in, in our dominant culture, we tend to think of water as either a commodity if we need it or a threat if we're worried about flooding. In many, many indigenous cultures around the world and places that live closer to the land, they think of water 
as a friend or a relative. Mm. And the benefit of that perspective is it encourages that complex systems thinking. What does water want? What is water doing in its relationships with these other entities? And that helps them to understand the importance of making space for water to continue to be able to uh, to perform it, its natural functions. So, so in a way, I, I mean, you obviously you you didn't say uh, no interference with it, but uh, in a way, less interference as we have now, and pretty much almost no interference at best. <laughs> um, I mean, can I say it, that? I. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we're not going to go back to that because we have done so much. Like I said, 75% of, of land degraded. Um, but there is so much more that we can do within our existing habitats to find and make space for water and to accommodate these processes. And, you know, biodiversity is a really important part of it. Part of what helps land to be able to absorb water, to move it underground, to be able to transpire water, to create rain for us, um, to supply the streams in the dry season. Um, you know, the microbes, the, the springtails, the plants, all of these are, the beavers are, are a part of that process. And so when you, when you are constricting all of those things and not allowing them to live and to function, you're also degrading these systems that do so much to support our life. And I think that's what we're seeing now. That's why we're seeing all of these um, really extreme uh, flood and drought disasters. And, you know, oftentimes you'll hear a politician say, our infrastructure wasn't built for these extremes. Uh, you know, and that is true to a point it, climate change is definitely a factor, but our infrastructure is a significant cause of these problems. And if we're not looking at that, if we're not rethinking how we do things, if we're not changing how we're doing things, we're not going to be able to, you know, build our way out of this by just building a bigger pipe. Yes. So, so the reason I asked was I wanted to understand where, at what point did it go wrong i guess because um you mentioned beavers and i thought i mean they interfere with the water as well right so or maybe that is sometimes a problem i, I don't actually know much about beavers but um where where does it start where does this problem begin with too much interference um yeah putting an exact date on it i think is difficult um there are a lot of different civilizations uh that have come and gone You know, one that I visited was the Mesopotamian marshes in Iraq, which was thought to be the biblical Garden of Eden. And there's a culture there called the Marsh Dwellers, and they have lived on top of the marsh for 9,000 years. And, you know, so this is the Fertile Crescent. There have been many, many storied civilizations that use um, irrigated agriculture that have kind of risen and fallen in that area. But... Um, this culture just continues. It continues to live on. And I think part of it is that respect, you know, they understand that water is life, that water supplies everything that they need. And so they've figured out a way to live, you know, to not drain it, but to live on top of it, to continue to be able to fish, um, to raise their water buffalo from it, uh, to harvest certain 
reeds for all their building materials that are a really fast growing renewable resource. Um, in terms of beavers, uh, so there are two species of beaver that are still alive today. Uh, one is in Europe and one is in North America. Um, they are pretty similar in terms of uh, their activities. Beavers, like humans, are also water engineers. But as I've been discussing um, in the dominant culture, a lot of human engineering is geared toward creating fast water, moving water away as quickly as possible. Whereas beavers kind of have the opposite goal. They're trying to create slow water. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, they swim and they can walk on land, but they're pretty awkward on land. And so they're very vulnerable to predators. And so they prefer to spend the majority of their lives in water where they feel a lot safer. And so by building a dam, um, they create a bigger pool of water behind the dam that gives them like a larger area for them to swim around and, uh, you know, cut the trees that they eat and use for their building materials. Um, they sometimes dig canals so they can move to, to other areas. And so in this way, they're creating these very complex wetlands around, st around streams. They're expanding the footprint of the water. And, um, you know, that was a really significant uh, creator of the landscapes of both Europe and North America. So when settlers came um, to North America, it was thought that like one tenth of the continent was beaver created wetlands. And so when you have that water slowing on the land, you have a high water table, which means the plants can access it, which means they're less likely to burn. Um, you're more likely to have rain. Uh, so the West was a lot less dry than it is today. Um, and, but, but, you know, the trappers came first, they killed almost all the beavers, they were almost made extinct. Um, and so when the settlers came, they didn't really see the beavers, they just saw these wonderful, flat landscapes with very rich soil um, that the beavers had created. And they were like, wow, this looks great. <laughs> let's, let's move in there. Um, and, you know, in Europe, um, there was a similar, the, the beavers were primarily hunted out earlier, uh, you know, and then the Europeans came to North America and found, oh, more beavers. Um, you know, they were very popular for making hats back in the day. Um, so like in the UK, for example, beavers were completely gone for 400 years and just recently reintroduced in the last 100 years or so from uh, Germany uh, and like Croatia where a few beavers were hanging on. Um, and so it's, it's interesting because yeah, beavers can flood landscapes. They can flood landscapes where humans are now living. Um, and so people in the dominant culture have tended to see them as pests. Um, you know, they often will kill them to get rid of them. Um, but the thing is like, if you kill a beaver, as one of my sources told me, you're just gonna create open habitat for another beaver. Like if beavers are there now, it's because it's good habitat. And so beavers are gonna come back. Mm. Um, and people have been realizing the many, many benefits that beavers provide. So in <clears throat> for North American beavers, there are more than 200 species that rely 
on beaver created habitats. So um, a lot of these species are uh, endangered because the beavers have been so eradicated. So bringing the beavers back can help to support these species that are really uh, having trouble. And um, they can actually prevent flooding. So one of the reasons why people are reintroducing them in England and Scotland is because a lot of towns were built right along rivers and with the bigger rains that are coming with climate change, um, you know, the, those towns are flooding a lot. And, you know, there was that uh, town in Germany just last year that had really bad flooding. Um, and so a beaver dam, it might cause flooding in that local area or like a higher water level, but the water that's going downstream, it's going to move through. The dam is made of sticks and mud, so it's not going to hold back the water completely. The water still goes through, but much more slowly. And so that means it's going to go through over a longer period of time, which means the flood peak is going to be lower. So those towns downstream are actually less likely to flood. So that's a significant um, benefit that people in England are thinking about in bringing back beavers. And then in the Western United States, it's the opposite issue, right? It's drought. So you know, in the Western US, typically we only have rain in the winter. We don't have rain in the summer. Um, so we have a long period that we need to get water when it's not falling from the sky. And historically, a lot of that water came from the snowpack. Um, like in California, there's the Sierra Nevada mountains that run down the spine with Nevada. Um, but with climate change, that snowpack is melting. Um, it's predicted that snow in the Sierra could be 80% gone by 2100. And there's similar uh, studies showing similar things in other snow basins around the West. So the beavers are another way of holding on to water for the dry season. Um, there's a researcher that uh, in Washington state that did some relocations and he found that uh, beavers in a rain dominated basin can make 20% more water available during the summer. Um, and it's that same thing. They're slowing the water. So, you know, it rains, it hits the beaver pond. It spends a lot of time there before it eventually rejoins the river and moves downstream. And also, um, there's a researcher named Emily Fairfax at the University of California Channel Islands that's done a lot of work on beavers as uh, kind of firefighters. Um, obviously, water doesn't burn, so their ponds are kind of a fire break. And if you let beavers come back, they tend to want to build, you know, there'll be this group of beavers here, another group of beavers and down the way, like maybe just a kilometer apart or something. So you'll have this whole string of ponds if they are left to their own devices. And it's not just um, that water area alone that serves as the fire break, but because they're raising the groundwater level, the plants nearby also have more access to water. So they're less dry and, and less likely to burn. Um, so California, for example, a lot of states, Washington state was really a leader um, in the Western US for bringing back beavers. And most of the other states have now uh, started to embrace beaver coexistence to some degree. And then California just last year funded five positions in the um, California Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, for beaver management. So that was a really um, pretty big turning point in the state. And they've been passing laws about 
um, depredation. So if, if somebody is worried about flooding and they want to kill a beaver, they have to appeal to the state for a, a you know a permission to do that. And so now the rule is, well, first you have to try all of these non-lethal measures. Um, and so there are things that people who work with beavers have in, innovated, such as if you can put a little pipe through the dam, then you're releasing some of the water from the dam. So that brings the level of the pond down a little lower. So sometimes um, if you can do that just a little bit, maybe you're not gonna flood this farmer's land, but the beavers will be happy and you can kind of keep going. Um, sometimes you can build a little berm along the, the landowner's land to keep that water off the land. So there are different things that you can do to try to live with the beavers instead of killing them. Um, and so the state is now requiring that. So that's just one example. They're going to start doing relocations again, which is, okay, you have a beaver who's getting into trouble with people in this one area, but maybe we have this wilderness stream that's sick from all of the land management problems. So we'll put the beaver there and they'll help heal the stream in that area, especially like in headwaters that can do a lot to kind of replace that um, snowpack because you're storing the water up there instead. So um, that's something that Washington state has been doing for about a decade, but um, California is going to start doing again this year. What is your stance on uh, hydropower? Does that uh, arise from that any uh, problems when it comes to the natural flow of water? Yeah, um, dams are a really, really massive environmental and social problem. And, you know, that's been pretty well documented around the world um, in various ways. They really dramatically alter the natural water flow. And so that means that a lot of the species who live in rivers are endangered. Um, there was a really interesting study that showed that 81% of freshwater species are in decline over the last 50 years, because primarily because of dams, which is much higher than um, species on land or in oceans. So dams have had this really, really dramatic impact on life in the river. And one of the real obvious ways you see it is in fish like salmon that swim upstream to spawn and they can't get there. Um, and their numbers have just completely crashed since the big dam building boom. Um, but the, the fish not being there is also a problem for people. So like the Mekong River in Southeast Asia goes through six countries And um, some 60 million people who live along that river rely on fishing um, for most of their protein. And so as more and more dams are being built, um, you know, those fish runs are having a much harder time. And um, it's hard to manage because it runs through multiple countries and there is like a Mekong River agreement, but it hasn't really been enforced um, But Cambodia, for example, uh, they were so worried about how they were going to be able to provide fish to people um, that they, you know, if, if they built all these dams and that destroyed the natural fish runs, um, that they basically did the calculations and they decided, you know, we can't afford this. And so they passed a 10-year moratorium on, on building new dams in Cambodia. Those fish runs may still be affected by other countries. Um, 
but that's, that's just one example. Um, so a lot of dams face, um, a lot of protest from environmental campaigners and also people concerned about uh, low-income people who rely on rivers. Uh, and so that can mean that a project is significantly delayed, the, the costs go way higher. Um, there's also, you know, for a long time, dams were considered to be carbon neutral um, because they don't burn fossil fuels. But in fact, there's a lot of um, carbon embedded in the concrete for dams. Um, concrete use globally is about 8% of our emissions. Um, and then the methane that's released in the reservoir from all of the, the plants decomposing is also significant. So some studies have shown that like in tropical areas, it can take 10 to 15 years of operation for a hydropower plant to offset, like compared with a fossil fuel plant to offset all of those emissions. Wow. So the idea that it's, you know, carbon free is not accurate. The other thing is like for a long time, hydro is considered to be reliable baseload power. Uh, you know, so renewables, you know, the sun doesn't shine all the time, wind doesn't blow all the time, but water flows all the time. And so people thought, well, you know, that's important baseload. But with climate change and the kind of water extremes, we're seeing both flooding and really dramatic droughts. So um, countries in Southern Africa, like Zambia and Mozambique, get almost 100% of their electricity from hydropower. So if they have a big drought, the economy collapses. And, and we've seen this happen because they just have zero electricity. Um, similarly, in Europe, um, with some of these heat waves and low flows and droughts, uh, you know, nuclear power uses water from rivers for cooling. So if the water is too low and too warm, it's not going to cool the nuclear plant. And so in some cases, um, those power plants have had to come offline uh, due to, to low river flows. Um, so hydro is not as reliable as people uh, came to think of it as, as being as well. And, you know, it often floods cultural sites. And it's interesting because the United States is arguably kind of the epicenter of the really big dam building boom, particularly from the 1930s to the 1960s. Um, but now there's a dam removal movement happening. And about 2000 dams have been taken out in the United States, which sounds like a lot. But if you count all the small dams, there's maybe like 95,000 dams across the US, um, which is typical of developed areas. Um, so that gives another kind of insight into the impact uh, of us on natural water systems. Um, so Europe is also starting to remove some dams um, for, for environmental reasons. However, there's still a dam building boom happening in South America and in Asia. Um, so it's, it's interesting uh, because some of the money from that is coming from, um, you know, Western development agencies who are saying, hey, you know, you, you need to do this. And in some cases, it's actually replacing a more sustainable way of, of dealing with water and, you know, putting these countries into long-term debt. So it's interesting that that's still continuing, even at a time when we're recognizing the many problems of dams and starting to remove our own dams. Uh, now, before we go to our last segment, um, I have some rapid fire questions pre prepared for you. Uh -oh. <laughs> um, let me ask you, is there anything I should have asked that I didn't, or is there anything else you want to add? 
Um, I guess just like some of the, the, you know, every place is different. Every place has unique geology, ecology, and culture. So these slow water solutions that I found um, around the world are all a little bit different, but they do have some common themes, um, which are, you know, restoring natural uh, water's natural slow phases like wetlands, floodplains, forests, and meadows, respecting water's agency and relationships, systems thinking rather than single focus, uh, local and distributed solutions rather than centralized and, and brought from far away, um, socially just, uh, and also uh, community engagement or responsibility. So in some places, the local community was actively managing the project. In other places, um, like the US, maybe the experts are still managing it, but maybe there's educational signage explaining you know, what water is doing in this landscape and why it's being managed in this way. So that brings um, water's presence uh, to, to people's mind. And I think, um, you know, these, these projects can be really empowering because in a time of, you know, climate change and biodiversity loss and water disasters, uh, people kind of feel like there's nothing that they can do. But because these projects are distributed and local, there's something that people can come together with people in their own community to, to do something to make their own community more resilient to flood and drought and also um, help with climate change. Thank you. Now let's go over rapid fire questions. Uh, I'll please ask you to um, try at least to answer them in two or three sentences. Okay. Um, yeah. Are you ready? I, I, uh, I'm ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, if you had a big poster, let's say on Times Square, everybody would see it. What would you write on it? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, message water is climate and because the... like you know like one thing you see is like with tree planting let's plant a trillion trees because of the carbon storage but those plans are completely ignoring water right trees have a relationship with water mm. so if you're not thinking about that you're not going to solve climate and you may create worse water problems so water is affected by climate, but climate also affects water or, you know, water is a significant part of the climate cycle. And that's, that's really being ignored on all levels. That's system thinking. Um, what are, what are the best sources to inform and learn more about, um, water in general and the problems uh, that are current and how to solve them? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I would say read my book. <laughs> it's called Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. And it's available from a North American publisher um, and also a UK publisher. Uh, and it will soon be out in China. And you can find out more about that on my website, which is slowwater.world. There's also some other interviews with me um, and excerpts. Um, there's a great website called Water Stories, and this is a guy named Zach Weiss, and he goes around the world and helps people who own land to kind of redesign their land to better manage water. And he has like a whole series of interviews with scientists and 
on the ground videos with with uh, some of the work that he's doing on the land. Um, so that's a, a really neat place to learn more about water as well. Do you have a favorite quote? <laughs> um, I mean, I have different favorite quotes for different things, but one I really like about water is water will go where it wants to go and nothing in the end can stand against it. And that is uh, from a novel by Margaret Atwood. Now, when it comes to water, um, keep that in mind, um, how would you spend $10 billion to make the world a better place? Well, that can actually go a really long ways with these slow water projects. They're often a lot less expensive than big gray infrastructure projects. And if you can do it to in a way that allows these natural systems to function again, that gives them enough space and resources to do that, they can maintain themselves to a large degree. So um, I think that money could go to many, many different communities uh, to start creating some of these distributed things. Um, Peru, which I write about in my book, um, they are taking money from water utilities and investing it in these natural solutions upstream. And it's amazing the, the amount of projects they're able to do with a very you know, limited amount of money. I mean, they're collecting a good bit of money, but these projects are not expensive. Um, and so they, they're having a, a good, good reach with that. What's your newest biggest insight? Um, since the book came out, I've been reporting a lot more on the relationship of plants with the water cycle. Um, and so I talked a little bit about that earlier with regard to forests um, and the idea that forests can actually bring the rain that they need if they are healthy and intact. Um, and that is uh, the work of a, a Russian atmospheric scientist uh, named Anastasia Makariva. Um, but I've also been delving into a bunch of science that is connecting logging to forest fires. And basically, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk of, oh, our forests are uh, messy with too much, um, they call it uh, fuel loading, which is like, you know, small things that are more likely to burn and carry the, the fire up. But there's this competing uh, argument in, among some scientists that in fact, a healthy intact forest is a lot less likely to burn because um, mature trees are much more um, capable at handling the water cycle. You've got the understory plants, you've got decomposing wood, all of these things that kind of create this moist, spongy environment in the microclimate of, of moist weather. Um, whereas when you clear cut, you First, remove all the plants that are doing that. You're drying things out. You're drying out the soil and the life in the soil. And a lot of times, um, you know, you're replanting plantations of the species that you want to harvest. Um, so it's not a complex system that is has evolved to manage water. And often using pesticides as well to kill the understory plants that you don't want. So that is also, you know, killing life in the soil. So, I mean, I think 
that's something that I hardly see anybody talking about at this point, that, that logging may actually be a significant factor in forest fires. So um, I haven't written that article yet, uh, but I'm, I'm starting to read the scientific papers and uh, hope to write it soon. This is really interesting, and um, therefore I can understand the enthusiasm, but please try to answer in two to three sentences roundabout. <laughs> that, would be, that would be great. <laughs> um, what do you think about desert cities like Las Vegas? They shouldn't exist. <laughs> um, it's another example of bringing in water from somewhere else and making more people vulnerable to the water scarcity that's in that area. And for Las Vegas, for example, some of that water has come from indigenous people's um, land elsewhere in Nevada. So it's also an environmental justice issue. A controversial opinion, I believe what almost nobody else does oh that i have uh that you have do you have one i mean i think you know just prioritizing water and water systems in the dominant culture we think humans are the most important and we also think that they are separate from nature and so therefore we rationalize destroying nature for the benefit of humans But as I've learned in my research, um, we're actually harming humans with that approach. And there, I'm not the only one who thinks that, but it is uh, not the dominant way of looking at things. Could you please explain rather quickly um, Bolivia's law of rights of Mother Earth? It's a rights of nature uh, law that has been embedded in Bolivia's constitution. I believe Ecuador has done the same. Um, there are states uh, and other government entities around the world that have also started to do this. Um, sometimes that means giving a river rights. Um, a lot of that often starts with indigenous peoples like um, in New Zealand, uh, because that is their worldview anyway. Um, but the idea is the laws that we have have damaged nature to a large degree. And so this is an attempt to bring those protections for nature, that different worldview into the dominant legal system as a way of better protecting the natural systems that support us. What country does have the best water engineering? Uh, I mean, to my mind, water engineering is a big part of the problem. Um, so that question kind of goes against my grain. <laughs> okay, let, let me let me rephrase it then. Um, wait, how do I? Uh, I wanted to say what what countries are um, what country is doing best with water. Um, that's not that's not a good like water management. Yeah, water management is that is that better? Yeah. Okay, wh what country? Um, has the best water management? I can't answer that specifically. Um, even the places around the world where people were starting to take these approaches to scale, like China nationally, Peru nationally, 
um, it's still pretty early days. And so they're still doing a lot of things in the, the older damaging way. Um, I would say probably a, a country that is less developed might have a healthier water system. Um, like I think of Guyana in South America, where none of the rivers have been dammed yet, and a lot of the primary forest remains. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Um, it was great listening to you, talking to you. Um, is there anything else you want to uh, say? Maybe so something you want to promote? Your um, social media, your website, your book, obviously, uh, Water Always Wins. Yeah, yeah. So my website is slowwater.world. The book is Water Always Wins. Um, I am eGuys on Twitter, E-G-I-E-S. I'm now moving on to Blue Sky and Mastodon and LinkedIn. And, um, you know, I'm under my name in, in those places. So people should be able to find me pretty easily. Thank you so much. I will much link for it all down. Me. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. And